Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right. Well, let's officially uh, kick this thing off. So we set this up. Um, uh, the Gateway Research Organization and uh, ourselves here at uh, uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. Um, we decided that what what's missing this year from the conference season is the networking. I've done a, a, a few conferences where I was a speaker and, um, you know, I don't even really get to see all the faces on the screen. I do this presentation and I got some questions sent to me through the moderator. I didn't even know there was anybody on the other end. Um, and the networking, I think, is half of the education at these conferences. So uh, yeah. I think it's so important to do this uh, as a networking. So we decided to just do networking. We're going to stay away from presentations. We're not going to really teach anything here today. Uh, it's just going to be a Q&A. So how we do that, we're going to introduce some stuff first and talk a little bit about a couple of sponsors first. But we're going to basically, you can ask your questions in the chat. And then Amber's going to moderate those. Um, I tried doing that the first night and I couldn't possibly concentrate on speaking and moderating the questions at the same time. So Amber's going to moderate them. So she will give you a, a heads up that we're going to do your question next. Uh, be prepared to take your audio off. And if you want to, you can take your video off too. It's nice to see a face behind the question. Um, and you can uh, ask both Tom and I, uh, the question we'll both do our best answered if you've got a specific question for me or straight for tom by all means uh, that's fine too just pretend you're sitting in the hallway at a conference or you're sitting around the table at coffee break so a uh, little bit of housekeeping first um just let you know this is like i said it's going to be recorded a um, little bit about ourselves uh, i'm steve kenyon this is my wife amber kenyon uh, we're a part of uh, um, greener pastures ranching we're a custom grazing operation in El alberta um, we've been teaching and talking about this for many, many years. So we've decided just to kick this in and get this networking going. Amber is also a part of the Gateway Research Organization, which we're going to talk about soon. We do have a couple of hosts here, I guess, today. Um, one is the Gateway Research Organization. Um, so the Gateway Research Organization is an applied research association. Um, basically, they're a non, not-for-profit group that does unbiased research in the province of Alberta here. Um, it's located out of Westlock, Alberta, and I've been a member or a, a director on and off of GROW for about 20 years. Um, it's, it's pretty important to me to get that unbiased research out there. Uh, they basically make, you know, do a bunch of experiments and, and do things that they can make the mistakes before we have to. So there's all sorts of uh, fantastic information I've learned from them. Um, groups like them, um, I know there's other provinces in, you know, in, the, in the states in the U.S. There are also other groups like this that bring in speakers and put on conferences and do events. And, and honestly, in the last 20 years, um, I'm going to give 98% of my education to groups like GROW, right? Because they're the ones that put on the conferences that bring in the big speakers that I get these aha moments from. And um, they do the experiments and they bring in different trials and we're doing a winter or a uh, Kern's a perennial wheat trial right now and and just some polyculture experiments that we're doing right now that like to me that's just an amazing education so uh, my hats off to organizations like GROW. Um, GROW is actually sponsoring us so we uh, we can bring in uh, some some big speakers. Tom are you a big speaker? Uh, not yet. <laughs> okay okay hopefully soon. Um, I, I, I will uh, uh, give you a heads up in January we've got a couple of really big speakers coming so thanks to GROW for that. Um, Tom's a big speaker. He's just not fat. 
<laughs> Tom's an excellent speaker, so yes. that's why he's here today. Um, so the uh, uh, the other commercial we're going to run is actually for Greener Pastures Ranching because I guess we're kind of uh, sponsoring this event too because we're uh, we're here doing this. So there's kind of two parts to our business, I guess, right now. Uh, number one part is uh, my wife started a video production company, so you can kind of see that the it was a little bit choppy through the internet, but uh, it's pretty high quality stuff, and she does a really good job of doing videos. So if anybody wants a commercial or an ad or a, a promo made for their farm or business, then uh, you can give us a call there. Uh, the other side is I do um, obviously some speaking and um, uh, consultations and seminars and stuff. Um, I do one-on-one uh, -on -one web based uh, consultations this win this winter and they're actually <laughs> I'm doing quite a few more of them than I was expecting. So if anybody's interested and in, we look at economics, finances, uh, grazing chart, uh, uh, we can do uh, pasture design, fencing and things like that as well. So uh, we can do any of that as uh, if, if you're interested. Um, our guest speaker tonight is Tom Kravitz. Uh, he has been a mentor of mine for many, many years. We're basically, uh, we've been doing the same thing for what, 20 years, Tom, on and off? I've been doing 20 years and you've been, I think, 21 now, eh? Something like that, yeah. Something so like that. We've been throwing ideas back and forth for years. And uh, it's great to have someone in your corner who's got the same mindset the same thinking as you and to run bounce ideas off of and and that's what tom and i've been doing for many many years so i'm grateful to him for that so uh, great opportunity to have tom come on here and uh, uh, chat to us tonight tom tell us about yourself a little bit and a little bit about why we're uh, we're going to do this topic tonight about ranching like a 12 year old i've been uh been in grass farming ranching since uh, well for since 2000 really <clears throat> and um my background um, comes from, we started out in uh, 1999 taking a holistic uh, resource management course. And then from there, I really got turned on to um, uh, grass management. And then um, after that, um, I think in 2003, I took my first ranch for profit course. And then two, late, two years later, I took it again, just to refresh myself. Um, and, and my wife came with me the second time. And then we joined the uh, executive link uh, program for three years after that. Now, my passion really is, uh, is managing grass, just like you, Steve, and how, how to make things um, simple, easy, and fun. Uh, and kind of what got me thinking this way was that um, a friend of mine, um, uh, his daughter and her friend uh, came, to, um, came out and spent the summers with us. And so when the first year that they came, they were 12 and 13 and they were really gung ho and it was a lot of fun having them around. But I realized that what we were doing was very labor intensive. They, um, Heather and Tiffany were their names or are their names and they couldn't do a lot of stuff that um, my wife, Jan and I were doing. So I had to figure out how to set things up so that they could do it. And what happened was we, our labor started to go down. Um, we just had less work to do. And the things that we were doing just became easier and easier. And I really started thinking about um, uh, the easier I could make things, the more time I had. And then that led me into, um, uh, into thinking about uh, expanding the operation. Um, and that's where we 
once I kind of got a template um, with fencing and water um, and everything uh, was simple and easy, uh, we ended up being able to run um, between 2,500 and 3,000 uh, yearlings in the summer with myself and one or two summer students. Um, so it's really, it's really a way of thinking. Uh, but a couple of things that, um, that I started doing was I developed a template for, for fencing. And it wasn't, um, when we started out, um, uh, particularly from, uh, from uh, holistic management, we were taught uh, to really look at uh, keeping our, our costs down. But one thing that wasn't really um, um, uh, talked about was how much labor costs. And labor, uh, there's two things. One is time, um, one is energy, and one is um, mental capacity. Uh, when you're, you're working uh, your butt off all day long, you don't have time to really think um, about how to expand your operation. Um, you don't feel like, uh, you know, you don't have the energy to look at your numbers. Um, like Steve, I think uh, a couple articles ago, you wrote uh, in the Canadian Cattlemen talking about mental capacity. And uh, that's exactly what it is. You know, if you don't, if you're exhausted, physically exhausted, you become mentally exhausted too, and you aren't able to go and um, uh, look at other opportunities, you know, to expand your operation. So one thing, um, you know, as an example, all your gates should be able to, uh, easy to open and close. There's things like we started out um, with um, building two acre paddocks using rebar. We were doing that uh, every two days, we were doing that. It was a lot of work. We were hand pounding these rebar posts, but the reason that we were doing that was because they were about half the price of, of uh, wood posts. And then we didn't need to rent a, a post pounder. Like I said, it, it just took a lot of labor. And so that's why I started uh, going to, um, you know, to permanent fencing. And then I went from um, single wire um, I guess I should, I, I'm saying that I did it, but uh, my wife and I, we did it. Um, we went, started out with uh, single wire and then we went on uh, to two wires because what we were finding was we were custom grazing. So we were bringing uh, cattle that uh, may not be very familiar with uh, uh, electric wire. And what we were finding was that, you know, there might be one or two that had got into the next paddock. That might not be a big thing, but I, it takes time. And every little bit of labor you add in your day, it just ex extends your day. And if you have um, uh, summer students, a lot of times they don't have the skills to go in and gather those, um, those animals from the other paddock. So then myself or Jan uh, would have to go and do it anyways. Um, so that's why we went to the two wires because then we didn't have jumpers and we didn't have animals that uh, popped under. Another thing that we looked at was um, our water situation or distribution, I should say. And when we took um, holistic management, uh, there was this, this kind of a competition on who had the raddiest uh, water truck. 
because that was a big thing, uh, moving these ratty water trucks around. So what I started out doing, uh, what we started out doing was we had an old um, hay rack. So we built a deck. We put a 1,250-gallon uh, tank on that, and then we hauled that around. Well, that took quite a while. Uh, you know, and then if your float uh, leaked, then you have to go and fill that trough up or that, or that tank up again. Uh, you know, and it just added labor. And then uh, at that time, I think that was the first pipeline was, yeah, 2001. Um, Alberta Ag had a program where you could lay out, um, you could lay out a pasture pipeline. And so that's what we did. Um, on our first, our first property, the, the property that we own was 373 acres. We laid out, um, the whole place had water. Uh, it was an inch and a quarter water uh, or a pipeline and that just dropped our labor down uh, immensely because it was just a matter of going plugging in in a uh, uh, hose to the um, to the pipeline uh, plugging into the trough and turning a valve on uh, that's what, all there was to it and then Heather and Tiffany who would have been uh, I think they would have been 13 and 14 at that time well they could do it too because the the trough was light and easy and they could throw it in a toboggan uh, behind the quad and they could go and move the cattle. In terms of animal handling, I realized that training someone to move animals in a, in a low stress uh, manner, that takes quite a bit of time and, and a fair bit of skill. What I thought was that if we trained the animals to, um, to two bells, one was a, a come to me bell and one was a follow me bell, anybody could go and move those animals for us. And that's what Heather and Tiffany did. They would just ring the bell and they were able to move the cattle. Um, we trained the hogs the same way. We trained the turkeys uh, the same way. Uh, and it just made our life much, much easier. And so that now it has evolved to where I use a, a whistle. Um, and in fact, uh, this past summer, um, I used actually two whistles, one for the cows, the, the cow herds, uh, and it's just a whistle that, uh, like a referee's whistle. And then I used a, um, another whistle, like a hunting whistle for uh, calling in coyotes, and I used that for the yearlings. So that, um, you know, if the, the herds were fairly close together, uh, I didn't have the other herd coming, uh, you know, up against the fence. Uh, you know, and then I just, if I was moving the cow herd, uh, use the, um, the referee's whistle. And if I was using, uh, moving the yearlings, I was using, uh, we were using the other, uh, the whistle. What I did was I had actually three sets. Uh, I had lanyard and I had both those whistles on, uh, on the three sets. So anybody could go and grab, uh, lanyard and they could go and move, move the animals. And it didn't, you didn't have to be you know, you didn't have to be a skilled person to go and move those animals. Another thing, um, you know, is, is looking at flow. So, and which is very uh, important when you're, um, when you're moving, uh, you know, small animals or uh, young animals, I should say, like, uh, you know, young calves and, and, uh, and lambs, you want to be able to go straight. So you need to build a gate so that like, if you're going across, um, it's not so bad if you're going from like, just from one paddock to another, like side by side. But if you're going across road, you need to have those uh, gates going straight across. 
otherwise you're going to have calves running down and um, someone who isn't, well, it's even someone who's skilled. Uh, that's tricky when you have calves running down the wrong side of the fence because you have to make a, a, a corner. Uh, you're smiling there, Steve. So you know what I'm, exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and it's not the end of the world, of course, but it's nothing to add on another two hours to your day trying to get these calves. So it's, it's just, like I said, a real uh, change in your thinking. Um, and kind of the way I explain it to, uh, to people is just ask yourself the question, can a 12-year-old do this? And if they can't, then you need to change it. Or get rid of it altogether and do something else. Uh, you know, do some, um, do it in a different way. Um, now, I do like this talk is about how uh, you know how to ranch like a twelve-year-old, but at the other end, how to ranch like an eighty-year-old. It, it applies the same thing or in the same manner. Um, so I have a friend who is uh, turning. I can't remember. He's seventy-six or seventy-seven this year. You know, he's he's bought into this idea. And he's running more cattle now. So he's running about 150, yeah, about 150 cow-calf pairs. When he was in his 40s and 50s, he was only running 80. And it was a lot of work. And every time we went to do something, it was, it was not a lot of fun. And now he's just enjoying it. And he's gotten to the point where he doesn't do anything that he doesn't like to do. So he likes to travel in the winter. So what he did was uh, he built a, uh, a good winter water, uh, water site and he built an alley and he has these long narrow paddocks and he fills the, those paddocks up uh, with bales. His grand, while well, he's gone, um, like sometimes he'll be gone for two months at a time. His grandkids come and they, all they do is open up gates for him once a week. He puts enough bales in there uh, in each paddock and he's off uh, you know, visiting his daughter in Bahrain or, uh, you know, going to Australia or whatever he's, you know, in the winter. And he's even got to the point where something that he hates doing is cutting twines. And his grandkids hate cutting twines in the fall. So he's gone to um, the, the guy that, uh, the person that makes his hay, he buys sisal twine for that fellow. The guy uh, delivers the, the, the bales and they place them out in his paddocks for the winter and nobody has to cut any twines. He just leaves the sisal twines on there. So it's that kind of thinking. And uh, the more that you, you get your operation uh, that way, um, the easier it becomes and the more, um, uh, the more you can expand. I love yep. this topic because when I first came to the farm and met Steve, I worked full-time on the farm and it was like the stuff that he could do, he could pick up a trough and, you know, manhandle it and move it. Right. Totally. And I had to find ways around those physical aspects. So I think it's a fantastic topic. Yeah. You know what? Um, so finally this past summer, I have, um, I finally got a trough designed exactly the way, um, I don't think I could do much better with that trough. Uh, it's, I can pull it with a quad. I can pull it with my horse. Um, it's low to the ground. Uh, when you have large herds of, um, of yearlings, particularly, they find every weak point in your water system. And when you have, when you have a failure in your water system, it's not fun 
even for somebody uh, who's, you know, who's, who has more skill, more strength, it's not fun to try and, and fix that water system. So what I have now is it's nice and low. All the calves can drink. Uh, it's low enough for, uh, for sheep to drink and cattle can walk, like uh, walk in it. Uh, and they won't be falling, falling in it, but they can step in it and it's not, um, you know, they won't damage it. I, I, we haven't had, we didn't have one single failure, failure this year. And we were running uh, on those troughs. We were running um, 850 yearlings on those troughs. And I think the, the biggest cow herd was about 400 uh, cow-calf pairs. So again, but that's taken me 19 years to, to get that prototype because I kept trying and then finding out, well, you know, oh, well, this failed. So then I have to figure out how to, to get around that. And um, I kept wanting to get there because um, I want it to be easy. And then anybody can do it. And I'm not stuck doing all the work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we do have a question that came up. And it's not necessarily on this, but um, I just got my soil test back. And my phosphorus is once again low, low. I thought all this mob grazing, trampling, bale grazing, and stockpiling over 12 years was going to be my management ticket and show an increase. I'm confused. If my phosphorus is low, how can I keep my 4DM per tons production going? I need phosphorus, don't I? Um, input, don't I? Thanks. So do you guys want to speak to that? Yeah, I guess so. A um, little off topic, but that's what networking is all about. We can go anywhere we want. Uh, my, I guess my comments on that right away is phosphorus is hard to measure on a soil test, right? You might have phosphorus available. What's your production doing, right? If, it, if your production is doing well, then, then what, why worry about the soil test? I don't do a lot of soil tests. I've done a few in the past and usually they come back pretty good. Um, now phosphorus is bound up in the soil and what we need is mycorrhizae fungi to release it. That's their, one of their biggest uh, benefits we get in the soil from mycorrhizae fungi is getting phosphorus available. So they can reach out and find it and, and make it available for the plants. So what can we do to increase the fungus in our soil versus the bacteria? Um, one thing is to uh, stomp, uh, stomp in or trample uh, dead material. So if you're tra tramping in live material, Tom and I just talked about this yesterday, actually. Um, if you're trampling in green material into the ground, you're going to increase your bacterial um, percentage in your soil. If you're trampling in dead plant material, then you're going to increase your fungal activity. So um, I'm not a scientist, but that's, you know, if I'm worried about my phosphorus, I definitely make sure I'm taking care of my mycorrhizae fungi. Tom, you got any comments on that? Uh, well, I'll just, you know what, uh, we had that discussion yesterday. Um, and so maybe I'll just share with everybody my perspective on it. Uh, you're much um, more versed in um, uh, what's going on in the soil than, than I am. Uh, my perspective comes from, um, I look at production. I use, um, uh, I use what I learned in, in holistic management and it is stock days per acre. And um, that's based on um a thousand pound dry pregnant cow, how much she would eat in one day. And that's one stock day. And that is the equivalent of about 24 pounds of dry matter. That's what I use. And if I'm getting to, if, if it is increasing, my feeling is that what's happening in the soil is increasing, it is improving. Um, now I know there's, there's ratios for uh, bacteria and fungal count. I don't really know that stuff. I'm not a soil scientist um, or so soil biologist. I use what is um, what I get paid for. 
and that is production. Um, yep. And as a, as a custom grazer, um, it'd be the same as if I was a grain farmer. Uh, how many bushels per acre am I getting? I want to know um, how many um, pounds of dry matter am I getting over the course of the season? And, you know, I had mentioned to you yesterday that kind of what I, my experience of keeping those records for, you know, since uh, 99, I think, once we hit the point of 170 to 200 um, cow days per acre, that's kind of the the tipping point for a self-propagating system. Now, maybe you need some phosphorus uh, to get to that point. I don't know. Uh, But once we get to that point, then we, all we need is the management, grazing management. The one thing that I'd add to that too, is if you're going to start adding phosphorus to that system, you're actually going to be a detriment to the existing mycorrhizae fungi, right? You, you put phosphorus into a system, you basically put them out of a job, right? Their job is to bring phosphorus to you and you throw it in there. The plant says, well, we got lots of phosphorus. We don't need the mycorrhizae fungi. And then they stop giving sugars to the fungus and the fungus will die off. So, I mean, to begin with, to initially get your system up and running, I'm not against adding some uh, fertility. I don't do it, but I'm not against it. Um, I would rather try and get the system um, built up so that it's, you know, it's an intact system. my opinion is it's not about adding fertility to our soil. It's about building biology. So if we're not getting the fertility we need, it's because our biology is not intact. So what management system do we need to change? What do we need to adjust to build the biology? And then we should get all the fertility we need. So did that hit that question good enough? I think so. Thanks guys. Um, So next up we have May. Uh, May, if you want to go ahead. Hi. Um, I really appreciate this topic and um, I guess just a really quick background. Um, I was really involved in holistic management, became a certified educator 10 years ago now. And I ended up going to work for three different operations in the Northern Great Plains. I worked for someone who kind of was doing mob grazing before it was called mob grazing. Used to hang out with Neil Dennis. I'm sure a few folks remember him very well. Um, So on a lot of those operations, uh, I was young enough at the time that I was fine with this heavy labor and uh, moving cattle eight times a day, whether it was the hard way or the easy way. And um, now that I'm starting my own operation and I'm really, you know, I don't have family, I don't have, um, you know, resources there. So I'm trying to build my own capital, stay out of debt, build my livestock herd all while trying to create efficiencies and reduce labor here because after mob grazing for other people for four years, my, I have injuries. I have things that don't work right anymore. Um, so I'm wondering where's that line between making an investment in that infrastructure and kind of maybe going into some debt for that infrastructure because I'm focusing on sheep as well. And so it's kind of hard to focus on some of this really low infrastructure stuff with sheep. Um, I know there's a lot of tips and tricks and things that I've done there. Um, But yeah, I'm just curious kind of that line between, you know, when is it good and right to make a bigger financial investment infrastructure to reduce labor versus kind of trying to think your way around some of this stuff? 
Yep, yep, good question, good question. So Tom kind of touched on a little bit of that at the beginning, um, so I didn't have to. It was great because he did everything that I was going to say. Um, but I agree with him that um, I went to more permanent fencing as well. Now, it's always a balance between labor and cash flow, okay, right? How much labor do we put in versus how much money do we have to spend? So when I first started, I, you know, I built up my, started getting my grazing business going. I quit my, my off-farm job. So I had lots of time, right? I'm out there, okay, I'm going to strip graze everything. We're going to do this and we're going to, you know, make this happen. But then I started to grow. I got more land and all of a sudden, now I'm moving cattle, I'm moving waters, I'm moving fences. And as I was getting bigger, I was running out of time. So now my labor is my, my biggest issue because I, I don't have time to get this all done. And I'm working back to work in, you know, 12, 15, 16 hour days. And so I started thinking about it. I started doing some numbers. And every time I put up a fence and take it down in the same spot, if I have to do that more than twice, then I might as well have bought new material and left it up. Okay. Um, so I started thinking about this. Well, boy, with the amount of labor I'm putting into this, I, I should just go out and buy more material. So instead of putting money into labor, right, time, because I could be doing something else. Um, so I started in putting in more permanent fencing. And yes, a lot of uh, grazing gurus and grazing uh, concepts talk about mob grazing and, and high intensity and, you know, using moving six or seven times a day or using bat latches or lifters or all sorts of things to make this more, um, more intense, but you got to value your labor in there. Your labor adds up big time. And, and I've come down to, you know, maybe moving once or twice a day is a nice balance. Every pasture has an economic threshold. I've figured out, I do a calculation on it now, depending on the size, the number of animals there, the distance away from, you know, the distance you have to travel. Um, there's an intensity that you need to be at where the labor balances out with the benefit. Okay. Uh, extreme examples. Um, I've got a pasture that's 30 miles away. Am I going to drive back and forth six times a day to move that fence? Right. My labor is going to go through the roof versus uh, it's right outside my back door and I can go out and move a fence five or six times a day. Right. I can walk out there and do it. Right. So the labor component's quite different between those two examples. Um, the farther think, away it is, probably the less I'm going to travel. I think, too, um, the type of animal really makes a difference. So one of our, our neighbors and one of the members the, on the board of Grow, he actually runs elk. And so for him, it would make absolutely no sense. Like you have to have permanent fencing. So he has a lot of small paddocks. Um, he does rotationally graze his elk, which is amazing to me because they're, they're fairly wild. Like, I don't know that I would want to be rotationally grazing elk. Um, but so yeah, he has all permanent fencing and then just a series of paddocks because of the type of animal that he's grazing. So definitely uh, labor is a big component. And a lot of people who are doing mob grazing, I've, I've got an article I could send you. I've criticized mob grazing before because it's too much work. Depending on your environment you're in, if I was in South Africa and I could get labor for, you know, $3 a day. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I would mob graze everything. There it or, is. Yeah, if I was in Colombia, I got a, a friend who's in Colombia, they can get, you know, labor. They can come out and work for a couple dollars a day. Yeah, but in my environment, I got to hire someone for 25 bucks. Plus, I got to give them a piece of equipment. So whatever that's going to cost me and to have them, if I mob grazed everything on my ranch, 
uh, it'd be an extra $30,000. And I don't see that return quick enough. So Tom, you got anything to add? Yeah, I do. Um, May, one thing that um, when we started out, uh, we were, um, we were selling meat. So we, we grazed hogs, uh, we grazed sheep, we grazed cattle, we grazed turkeys, and we grazed chickens. Um, and actually I grazed, uh, that's the, we also grazed some bucking horses one year. Um, and what I found was that it was a lot of labor to move all those, like all those animals. So I said, screw this. I put everything together. Um, and it really worked well. Um, it particularly worked well when we had coyotes around because um, the sheep would, um, they, were, they were always near the cows, but then at dusk, they were right in the middle of the cow herd. Um, and we actually did have, this, uh, when we got the sheep, we did uh, buy a trained um, or a mature guardian dog and she was fantastic. But then when she aged out, we didn't replace her uh, because I, I read this article about a, a fellow in, in um, Colorado. And what he found was the same thing that I was noticing, that the sheep kind of hung around not too far from the cows. But at dusk, they were right in the center of the, of the cow herd. And it just worked, worked great. Um, so... It might work for you, May, to um, to put all those animals together. Um, the best mob that I've ever had, uh, we had, uh, I think, about 50 or 60 feeder hogs and, and about 200 head of cows uh, and about 20 horses and I think about 350 sheep, if I remember correctly, with, with lambs. And they worked fantastic together. And once they, they were trained um, to, uh, to be a mob, like it, was, it was just so easy. Uh, it was just so easy to, to deal with them. And I only had to move one, one group. Um, I, I have been writing, um, for the last couple of years, I've been writing articles for um, the online magazine On Pasture. Um, I... I write about, or one of the articles that I wrote was how to create um, that herd. I did take some um, flack from it because maybe uh, a lot of people didn't think what I was doing was uh, low stress uh, because when you have bunch quitters, um, I get this uh, energy and I, and I envision myself as a wolf and I go hard after those bunch quitters and I get them trained to realize their safety is in the herd. With, it doesn't matter what species um, you're dealing with. The principle works the same. Um, and I remember one time I went, had to bring in some, um, just some steers uh, to go to the butcher. And I just cut out, you know, uh, I don't know how many steers I brought in, maybe about 50, um, just because that's the way it worked. And I left everything else and I was bringing, I had to go, we had to walk about uh, just about a mile, mile and a half. So we were going maybe had been about half a mile, quarter mile, and I turned around, the whole mob was following, uh, even the horses. And horses are kind of dickheads uh, when they're in the mob, but uh, they all learn that that's their safety. 
so in that situation, I, I put the steers into the corral and then I picked out uh, the three or four that I needed to go to the butcher. All the other animals laid down uh, outside the corral and waited until I was done. I opened up the gate and I started to, um, uh, to herd the, the steers, rest of the steers out. And I herded all the mob back to, uh, to the paddock. Um, there's just a lot of neat things that can happen and it doesn't matter what species it is and the species combine, uh, you know, they get, they get hooked up to each other. Uh, it just takes a little bit of training, uh, but it doesn't matter. They, they work together once they know that that's their, that's their mob. So I'm not sure, maybe I didn't answer that quite right. Sorry, May. Um, okay. So I find uh, it's, very long um, along lines, uh, the line of what uh, Steve said, that there, the, um, the point where you, um, you, you spend some money on infrastructure is when you have the money um, and it balances off um, your, your labor. Because you have, to, you have to figure this out. Okay, how much am I spending on my labor? Um, like I like to use $18 an hour because I can usually hire someone for $18 an hour. So that's, that's the, that's the level that I use. Um, so uh, when I'm figuring out how much time it takes me to do something, I use $18 an hour. And so then you can figure out, okay, well, if this is going to take me, uh, you know, how many ever hours, like uh, over the course of the summer, it's going to 50 hours, you know, as an example. Well, there you go, 50 times uh, $18. Uh, I don't have my calculator handy, but you do your math, math in your head, right, Steve? So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so that's kind of where my, my, um, my cutoff is. Um, I want that. I don't want to borrow money for infrastructure. I want it to pay for itself. Well, I so think do that's, that the hardest, that's the hardest part is waiting to potentially save up enough for those um, because I got one of these beginning farmer loans a few years ago to buy livestock and I'm still, so I haven't paid myself and I keep telling myself, you know, oh, five years, you know, that's still a beginning ranch, right? Like I shouldn't get paid yet, yeah. but I'm, I'm done now not getting paid. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's I'm either done. they're going to go uh, or, you know, we're going to figure out a better way. And I work full-time too as a caveat. So. Hey, there you go. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be different for everybody uh, on where that, that line is. And just for myself, like I said, I, I knew that, um, you know, particularly those first three years. And it seemed like on every property, it's the same uh, because we rented, um, uh, we rented at our height was about 5,500 acres of rented land. Every property that we took over, it took three years to get the infrastructure in place. But the cool thing was once we got our infrastructure in place, we started making more money because we could, um, we could run large, uh, uh, larger herds. Um, and that's a big thing right there is get your herds as big as possible. Uh, and that, like, again, that's why I put all those animals together. It was to cut down on labor and infrastructure because then I only needed one trough for all those animals. Yep. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, definitely. I think I'm just, uh, you just got to be patient in this business. That's the, you know, I used to manage so many animals and I miss that, you know, cause I just can't without debt, you know, yeah. I just can't get there unless I partner with somebody. So it's, it's been frustrating. I think that would be a really big key though, too, is to maybe look at who you can possibly partner with. Like I know, let's say for, for winter grazing and stuff, um, we don't have the big equipment and stuff to do crops. So we find local farmers that maybe we can work with and, and do it. So that might be an option to see who's in your area that you could work with. A lot of people against grazing cropland here. Oh, here too. It's the same with Steve and Amber. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Yeah. So May, I just wanted to um, to mention that um, I've never owned a tractor. I've hired lots of tractors, but uh, I've never uh, owned a tractor. Uh, and the big reason is because I hate equipment. I'm not very good at fixing it. I can break it pretty good. Uh, I'm just not good at fixing it. Like, you know, you had mentioned that you used your uh, beginner farmer loan to, to get... Um, uh, livestock. Well, there you go. That's that's generating income. When you buy a tractor, that's just an expense. The only piece of equipment that appreciates, uh, from what I see, is a horse. Because um, the more you use that horse, the better it is, and its value goes up. But every time you jump on that quad, the value goes down. I know you're. Uh, not I have a dead quad in the steep, barn right but, now. But I don't want to sit. <laughs> No, Tom and I are in the same ballpark as that. I've never owned a tractor either. Um, my quad's dead in the bush. Um, yeah, we do. I, I'm not a big horse fan, but I'm wondering, if my, my smile was because I'm wondering if my llama has appreciated in value. Your llama has definitely not appreciated in value at all. I can tell you that much. He was free. He was free. So I he just, was free when it, we got him. If I sell and him. And he's, he's worth less than free now. <laughs> we can't get rid of him. Okay. Are we good? That's awesome. Did we hit that um, good enough, May? Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. So there was a question, Tom, for you. Um, do you possibly have some pictures of your water tanks? And did you build or buy them? Um, well, I didn't build them because I can't build shit. But um, uh, wood or steel. Um, but I designed them. You know what? I do have pics, Kendall. Um, just that I don't know how to bring it up, bring pictures up for this. Um, That's okay. Steve, Steve has my email address. He can send them to me. Okay. Yeah. I bet there's more people interested. So why don't you actually send them out to Steve and he can post them on his Facebook page. Okay. We can do it over the next couple of days, Tom. It doesn't you know what? I'll, right I'll send, I'll, how about I send the two pics? So I have one where it's actually being used and I have the other one where it's just uh, uh, standing alone. And um, I should point out that um, a lot of the things that I do there's not a lot of people that believe that it works um, because it's simple and easy because I need to be able to understand it. I need to be able to, to move it. I want to be able to, I like riding my horse. I like using my horse. So I want it light enough that my horse can move it, but it has to be robust enough so that it doesn't get damaged. And um, I don't have to go and fix something because it's just, you know what, I'd rather go and just move some cows and then go and play poker with my old friends. Uh, that's kind of what I like doing. Um, so when you see this trough, um, you may think, well, that's not going to work, but I, I've proven it. Um, 
and like I said, this summer, I never had a single failure. Yeah, I never had, we never had a single failure and we had four of those trops. Okay, so Tom, if you can send me a couple of pictures, I will post them Sounds tomorrow good. or whenever we get them on my Facebook page. If anybody's interested too, I've got a water systems album on my Facebook page. You can go into it. There's all sorts of different water troughs. I actually, somebody asked me a while ago, so I actually figured it out. I've set up over 165 different water sites over my 20 years um, on, on my land alone. That doesn't include the consulting I've done to help people. So um, Tom's probably done similar. We've set up a lot of different systems and setups and changed it and made the mistakes and had the disasters. And um, so, yeah, we've, hopefully we've got some of these mistakes figured out for you. So we'll, we'll post them tomorrow. Awesome. Next up we have John. Just a second. Could I just jump in there on the water? Yeah. Um, here's my two cents on, um, on water. Um, the best you can do is go pipeline. And like this summer, because of the, uh, what has happened with the oil patch crashing, um, this summer we bought a DR17, a two-inch DR17 pipe for 69 cents a foot. Have not bought that at that price in 15 years. I know a lot of people uh, use solar. I absolutely hate solar because <laughs> they're so, I know Steve, uh, but they're so, you're, they're so finicky. And the cost of um, a solar system, you can buy for the, the cost of a solar system. So you're looking at what about between four and $5,000, like all, all inclusive. Would you agree with that, Steve? Yeah. Okay. You can buy a mile and a half pipe for that, like two inch DR17. Prices definitely come down. It was a, like, I bought a whole bunch of pipe this year too. And I'm not one to put in pipeline because I'm on rented land. <laughs> But I'm putting it in because pipelines really come down. As the price of natural gas came down, so did so did the uh, plastic pipe. So yeah, um, if yeah. you build your own solar systems, you can do them a little bit smaller or a little bit cheaper than that. But yeah, in general, uh, solar systems are very finicky. You know what? Um, I know you said about rented land. It's portable. Yeah. You blow that stuff out. Like I, we lost one. Um, one property, uh, we had a disagreement on the owners wanted more money. And I said, it's not worth it because I'm doing all the work. Um, and I pulled three kilometers worth of a pipeline off their property. And I drug it um, uh, with a skid steer uh, six miles <laughs> behind that yeah. skid steer. I lost a piece of uh, land one time, but the, the new owners bought it and then they wouldn't let me take my pipeline out of there. So it could go either way. You got to make sure you you got that plan, but. Yeah, well that, you, you know what? I just put that in my contract because that's, that's my stuff. Yep. Not the landowner stuff. Great. So next up we have John, if you want to go ahead, John. Hey there. Thanks. Uh, question on rented ground. Um, what's, what is your recommendation for, for cattle specifically for corrals, uh, catch corrals or, you know, doctoring, um, loading up in the fall to, to, you know, take off that ground seasonally. Um, and we do some AIing of our beef cattle. So, you know, we need to run them in a few more times to do that as well. So it's not just uh, once or twice a year. Sometimes it's three or four times a year. Um, so what's your thoughts on rented ground? You know, is it portable uh, panels? Is it the well or the oil pipe um, 
24 foot long portables. Those are not common around here, but they're available. Uh, you know, it's a guardrail style. I kind of like to hear your your take on on what you'd like to see or use for those. Okay, um, I'll just real quickly give you my version. Um, everything for me is portable. Um, we rent all of our pasture land, so um, I I rent land, I lose land, I get more land. Right, it's up and down, back and forth. So everything I've got is. Uh, portable. I mean, there's some pieces of land that, that have an existing corral already, so I might use that, but I might add some steel panels to it because some of those old uh, wood corrals, as we found out this year, when you try and shove 700 head into a corral that holds 300, um, it can explode really quickly. Uh, but definitely bringing in portable steel panels. Um, and we actually picked up a few years ago a portable uh, tub system as well. So it's got the tub, the alley, the palpation cage, and the scale all as one unit. Expensive, but very handy. Um, boy, can, can, compared to what we used to do, you know, trying to chain up a, an old squeeze to a couple of panels, um, my vet is much more appreciative to the safety <laughs> of this uh, portable tub system so and then I can move it to any piece of land anywhere anytime so to me that that was a a big step up in our operation is to get all that portable stuff and in reality if I had to pay an extra $500 a year to use my landowner's corral system well in a couple of years of that $500 extra rent I could you know buy panels and have them portable to move around now the downside to that is now we're going to have more labor we're going to have to be moving that, um, uh, you know, go load it up, haul it over. And that's a half a day's worth of work. Um, one of the things I found to make that easier is, is don't do it all myself. I actually hire somebody now to bring his truck and trailer. I just load him up and then he goes down and that way I don't have to worry about two vehicles. And, and, you know, if there's a flat tire in the trailer, well, that's his issue. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that. So it saves me time that way too. So those portable panels, though, uh, definitely a, a big godsend for me. Having a bale truck instead of a tractor too is really big for that too, because um, the portable panels, I mean, being able to move that with a bale truck and take it down the highway and not have to, you know, go super, super slow trying to, to get places. I, I think that's been huge. Tom, what do you got to say about that? Sorry, sorry about that. I'm right with you, um, uh, Steve. Uh, that's what we did. And then actually I, I uh, joined with, um, uh, with a neighbor and I forget how many panels I bought. I think I owned like, or Jan and I owned um, maybe about 25 of the, the big oil field panels. And I actually got uh, gates built in uh, that I could ride my horse through and open them. And, um, and then he probably had maybe 50 panels and we just put them together. And I hired a um, uh, truck and trailer uh, and tractor on both ends to offload. Um, and that's, that's what we did. Cause we had, like I said, we had 5,500 acres and they were, it, it was all over. Um, um, the other thing that, uh, we started doing before, uh, we really expanded in custom grazing. We used polywire. I remember, uh, my daughter, uh, and son, like they were maybe 10 years old and, they knew how to, um, uh, like when we were sorting, uh, they were on the, on the dummy side of the, um, of the spooler and they just lifted the wire over and, you know, over the animal that we, um, 
uh, that we want to that we didn't want to capture, they just lifted the wire over. And you know what? I still do that today. And we sort uh, like this summer. Well, in no time at all, uh, we were sorting um, calves from you know a four hundred pair in about half hour. Um, and you can load up bulls uh, out in the pasture uh, once they're trained to electric wire. Uh, you can do all kinds of things um, with that polywire. Uh, the first year that we um, uh, that we pasture weaned, uh, like we only had I think 80, 80 pair at that time. That was a long time ago. Uh, <clears throat> we sorted everything out in the pasture with polywire. We just um, lifted the wire over top uh, the calves and walked the cows out to the next paddock. There's lots of ways to skin the cat. You just have to have to think about about that um, and be a little flexible in your thinking. Um, and how can it be simple and easy? And you have spooler and some polywire. That's pretty simple and easy in my book. It's cheap we had, too. We had to do that this year when uh, our 700 head broke out. <laughs> yeah. Wrong paddock, and it wasn't an easy move back in. So we had, I think we had four, including the trucker. I think we had five, four or five people there. So I just strung out a hot wire and I used people as posts. Mm, you bet. Right. It's not hot, but it, it's pretend yep. posts. So they just held it. And then we walked around and we crowded them in and moved them in. And the guy on the end, which was me, kept rolling it tighter. We got the paddock smaller and smaller and smaller until we're right by the gate. And we basically pushed them in just with these human portable posts. You bet. So if they respect electric fence, man, you can do a lot with, with a polywire. Yeah, you bet. I'm not just a wife. I'm a post too. <laughs> I have no idea if we answered your question, John, but did we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I have a, an AeroQuip uh, portable tub alley uh, chute that's been a godsend. And, and frankly, we can work cattle with, you know, two less people um, with that. It's, it's mostly the catch pens, especially when you have cows and calves and bulls and you're trying to you know, get 40 of them in a pen that's designed for 20 or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, a lot of times we'll use a, a you know, a, a poly wire or even a Galgar smart reel and, you know, get them into it and stuff. It's just more of a, you know, do you put the money into, uh, what do you do for rented land? And I was considering either, you know, the portable um, oil field panels, those 24 footers I was considering buying about 25 of those we don't have any of those right now we just have the you know the standard 10 or 12 foot paddle panels that you'd see in a barn or something or you go buy a portable corral um like you'd see some ranchers use that'll fit you know 50 75 or 100 head in them that you know you pull out there with a truck and then you, you pull out the panels off the, off the sides they're kind of hinged on there and what's kind of looking at you know what's what the better cost obviously it's a lot cheaper to by the oil field style um but you have you know more time and expense into setting it up and paying it taking it down but um, um that's just kind of what we were trying to pencil out on paper which is the better way to go so um i thought that's what you're going to say is you guys are probably using those portable setups and and i think that makes a lot of sense on rented land and the other thing with those panels you are flexible so you can set up uh your pens to whatever size I the other the other option, John, I've I've uh, done that in the past. If cash flow is a problem, and like when when I was starting up, I mean, I couldn't afford to buy a whole bunch of big heavy duty panels. Um, 
what I would do is I had a bunch of small panels, you know, I, whatever mixed and, you know, broken old panels I could buy at an auction sale cheap or whatever, you know, however it was. I know a lot of people can be in that position. I've been there. So um, what I, what I would do is just pound some posts, right? Kind of design it the first time, get those, you know, hand movable panels set up and then just go out with a post pounder and pound posts to make, you know, put some solid points in there just so they couldn't move them around as much. And then you could, you know, wire the, the panel to the post or whatever, so they can't move it. And then you could still do everything by hand, right? Because when I started, I didn't have a tractor. And, you know, all I had was a stock trailer that I could throw these little, you know, 10 foot or 12 foot portable panels in. Um, but just by going out there and designing it the first time and then pounding maybe six posts just to make it solid, right? I mean, I've, I've been the guy that, you know, backed the truck up against the panels to make them solid before. So um, I've been there, done that. <laughs> Everybody's done that, I think. For that uh, matter, just, one of the tricks that Steve uses even to um, park our portable tub system, because there's a, a jack on it, um, is he's dug a hole so he can just back it right up into the hole and it goes in and there's no longer a need to, to you know, put it down and jack it, down, it back yeah. up when it's time to go and it saved a lot of time. Now that's an interesting idea. I've never thought of that. <laughs> That's a really good idea, Steve. I got to the point where, you know, if there's a tractor nearby, we'll pick up the, uh, the, the front of the chute so we don't have to crank it up and crank it back down. We'll pick it up and take the wheels off. I didn't think about digging a hole. So, um, well, if like you have to dig two little holes, right? If, for example, I've got certain places where I have watering sites that, I mean, the cattle are coming in there all the time anyway. But if I have one foot rod or one pink eye that, you know, I'm going to have to treat something for it. Um, it's a lot easier just to, cause I already have a spot. If I, if I pull that tub system in there and, and already have the holes dug, right. Just for the tires to drop into, then it drops it down to the ground far enough that you can run one animal in, run it through the chute, treat it and kick it out without having to do all the work or cranking. Cause those, you know, I can get really cranky after cranking that for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just digging a couple holes with a spade just for those tires to drop in just for that one animal. And, and then, you know, next year you might have to clean it out a little bit cause it's kind of filled in a little bit, but uh, um, yeah, just uh, always have that one spot in the perfect spot, just to load one animal. That's kind of handy too. Yeah. Make sure your wife knows where it is too, because when grass grows up over it, it's really easy to trip and fall into them. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, <laughs> next up we have Megan. Megan, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, my question um, was regarding calves in the fall. Uh, we rotational graze using electric fencing all, all summer and they work great. We managed to keep our herd of cow-calf pairs in just with two hot wires uh, on the perimeter. And, uh, but come fall and those calves get fluffy, uh, we're, we're starting to find we have a handful every fall that, uh, and they're not quite weaning age yet. I'm just wondering, how do you guys deal with that? You needed to be on last week's meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, why don't you start that one off? Okay, well, first thing I, I would ask is uh, what size of fencer do you have? Oh, that would be a question I can't answer. We, we use the solar, solar uh, chargers. Um, okay. From Gallagher, I believe it is. And they work great all summer. I mean, it was dry this fall. So I think that probably paid, played a bit of a part as well, too. But normally, um, normally you have a charger like the solar ones. Uh, you know, they're about two, 2.5 joules. And that's just not enough kick. For myself, uh, 
I don't uh, cheap out on, on uh, my energizers. I want, I like to have 12, 12 uh, plus joules uh, of energizers. And then you don't have to worry about those problems uh, because when, when they get a shock, it hurts. Um, kind of the difference is um, like those small energizers, you'll get a shock and it'll really, it'll uh, startle you. But then when you touch a um, fence with a 12 joule fencer, it burns for about uh, 20 minutes. That's the difference. Um, so like I know a lot of times people look at, um, at, um, at your, uh, uh, your volts in the fence. Volts is just pressure. Um, the real kick is the joules. Okay. So like my, my preference is I want at least 12 joules. But um, maybe I don't know what how big your operation is, how many how much fence you have. You know, maybe you can get uh, like maybe six joules is is fine. Um, now Gallagher makes great fences or great energizers. Stay Fix does, but there's that price. The price is coming down, and there's a couple um, used. Um, shit, I can't remember what brand it was. Um, very good fencers, and they were about um, about half price. Uh, for the same same number of joules, but again, in my my thinking is don't cheap out on on your energizer. Okay, we'll have to take a look then and maybe do a little upgrading. The other option, mm -hmm. if you if you can't afford a big energizer right now, is you could run a second wire that's grounded. Um, if you have one running out with a hot wire and then another one running that's connected to another ground rod, then that that helps avoid the dry ground or frozen ground issue that we're having right now, um, mm -hmm. because that works as an insulator. So then the power comes out through the hot wire, through their body to the ground wire and back to the fencer. So it hits them a full jolt, but they got to hit both wires. Um, okay. The podcast got released yesterday from last week's topic. I mean, that's all, that's what we talked about was winter electric fencing. So definitely go to the grow website or grow Facebook page and it's linked um, to the podcast of this Wednesday night networking from last week. And that'll give you a lot of answers there. I'll put Perfect. it in the chat Thank as you. well. Hey, okay. could I make one more, more, more comment before you leave? Um, where, what, um, uh, what height do you have your two wires? Um, well, those, those weren't the, those wires weren't the ones that I was having trouble with. The one in particular was a a, a middle wire in a barbed wire fence. So we removed the middle barbed wire and put in a, a hot hard wire on the quarter. It's a, it was a residual field that we were trying to graze. And so along the highway, we thought we'd put a hot wire in there, but it seemed to do uh, nowhere near as good as where, where we would normally run two hot wires. So. Um, okay. That sounds like that, that would be, I guess about, so the middle, the middle of the three, so kind of like mid thigh, I guess it's at nose height for them, but they just don't okay. touch it with their nose. They go in with their fuzzy head and just lift up and walk through. That sounds like a grounding issue, uh, to me. Would you agree, Steve? Uh, grounding on the fence, but you could also ground one of the barb the bottom barbed wire. That way, when they walk in and touch the top one, if the bottom wire is grounded to a ground rod, then it'll, it'll give them a, a full charge. Okay. Uh, but you, you could have, you might have to improve your grounding on your fencer as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was referring to. Yeah. Uh, but again, um, get a good fencer, get a, yeah. a good energizer. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much.
Great. Uh, we have Briley up next. Maybe they're not there. Um, in the beginning, startup, would it be better to invest in infrastructure and custom graze and later buy your own animals? Um, my feeling is you got to get cash flow. Um, and if, if you're starting out without um, uh, a lot of cash, um, in my feeling, you got to custom graze and, and get that system uh, figured out uh, to where you can make some money at it and then start putting money into, um, into your own livestock. Yeah, to, to me, that would come down to an economic decision, right? Does your, does your cow profit center make you any money? Or does your custom grazing profit center make you any money, right? That was my original decision when I came back. I learned how to do a gross margin analysis uh, in 2002. Uh, I was custom grazing and I owned my own cows. And I came back and I figured out that my custom grazing was making me a, a good margin and my cows was losing me a, a, a profit. So it was an easy decision for me. I sold my cows and increased my custom grazing. But that doesn't necessarily happen in every situation in every environment. Every, you know, every farm is different. You have to do your own numbers um, and, and figure that out on your own. So, but it's a, a matter of understanding the difference between economics and finances. I've got an article I could uh, link here. Um, uh, there's a big difference in that. And, and understanding whether you should own something or to rent something or to you know, custom graze or to own cows, that's usually a, a decision to be made versus a financial decision or an economic decision. So um, without going into a really long conversation on that, um, that's the best probably I can say. I can link that article though and, and try and explain the difference between that if, if you need, need be. Great. Um, next question here. What is a good movable mineral feeder that holds up being moved all the time? Interesting. Movable mineral feeder. I use the recycled tubs from Protein Licks, right? So sometimes in the winter I buy protein tubs or protein licks, and then I've, I've got these tubs that are left over. I like getting the 56 kilogram ones because one, I might be able to possibly move those. We're talking about making it physically demanding the great big ones oh my goodness i can't move them the 56 kilogram ones are hard enough to move uh, but it when i'm you know done with them i end up with this nice little tub that i can throw mineral into so they're all over the place i every pasture has about six of them lying around i just got to look for them so um that's that's my portable one i move it sometimes they can dump it over because it's just a plastic tub but uh, most often you put in one you know one or two bags of mineral in it and and they don't knock it over Tom? I like the, the big uh, Rubbermaid tubs, the collapsible ones. Uh, they last, they last uh, you know, it, when you're running big herds, you know, 600 plus uh, in a herd, um, they last, you know, about four years. And easy to just to throw in the back of the pickup or whatever. You can probably carry them on your horse. Yeah. And it, well, I actually throw them in at my toboggan. I always, I, I drag stuff with my toboggan behind my horse. So it's nice and easy to throw that in. Great. Uh, next up we have Briley. Okay. Um, Tom, can you speak more about getting sheep bonded to steers? Yes. Um, the best way to do it is in the winter. That's the easiest way. Uh, because uh, depending on how you feed, feed them, um, and like if you're if you're feeding grain, 
uh, or you're bale grazing, they will just, they will naturally bond. Um, what I found a very effective way is when we had coyotes around, they figured out where the safe point was pretty quickly. Um, and you know what, on that point, we never lost, um, although we did, didn't have a big flock at that time uh, to what I'm referring is because uh, we had, I think we had about 50 or 60 ewes at that time. Uh, we didn't lose a single lamb uh, and we didn't have a guardian dog for three years uh, because the, like I said, the, um, uh, the sheep knew where their safe spot was and they were in the middle of the cow herd every night. So I want to add to that question, Tom. Um, when I was young, I had a small goat herd and I couldn't get them away from their barn, right? As soon as you tried grazing farther away, um, they wanted to come back to the barn and they, they would jump through the fence and blow through fences and whatever, just to get back to their barn. Um, but if you were to put that herd out with a cow herd, they would bond up and herd with the cow herd and because it was protection. But I was told there was a point that they would get enough animals. Uh, I think the number they said was about 75 goats. So in this case, maybe sheep too. Um, 75 goats would feel comfortable enough as a herd that they would go off on their own, right? So is there a number or a balance that, or maybe there isn't one? Have you found that, you know, so many sheep will go off on their own or do they always stick around with the cows? Once they're trained, uh, you know, and I should jump back, uh, you know, I, I said how to get them bonded. Um, I, um, I've been a ranch manager now for, uh, since I think for five years now. Um, and the one, the first ranch that I went to, they had, um, they had bought two, two different flocks and those flock, those two flocks were not bonded to each other. There's one, um, uh, Woolies and then the other flock was, uh, Katahdin's and it was a bugger of a time to get them bonded just to each other. Um, and then once I did that, then, um, I just started moving them with, with the cattle and I just kept doing that. And they just naturally, um, they naturally, uh, became bonded. Uh, and like I said, the, the hogs became bonded and the horses became bonded altogether. Um, I'll refer back to the article I wrote. Um, I forget what, what month it was, um, in the last two years, uh, just about how, uh, how to uh, uh, create that herd. Uh, I think the title is um, uh, happiness is being in the herd. I think that's the title of the article on, um, on pasture. And in there, I talk about uh, becoming, becoming the wolf and um, uh, getting that high energy on the bunch quitters. Uh, now, of course, when you have a um, little animal, you know, or young, I should say, um, you need to do, you know, it's a lot more gentle, but it works the same. And you just kind of start moving them together. And you know what? It didn't take me very long. I would say I was moving every, every two days at that time. It took me about two, two weeks to get um, the sheep uh, and the hogs and the, and the horses and the cattle all bonded together. It's just a matter of being, uh, being consistent. I love hearing about that stuff. I think it's so cool getting all the animals to work together. It is cool. Um, like some of the things that you see, you know, that I've seen are just, it's just amazing. Um, like as an example, one thing, um, uh, you know, I, I used to always think that uh, uh, mothers would go off by themselves to have their young, you know, particularly cows. 
but when they're bonded, they're dropping their calves right in the middle of the herd. Um, and it just, it's just, it's so cool. Um, yeah, it's just so cool. Um, I remember uh, uh, there was a blockade in a, in a gate um, and the cows had gone through and there were some horses that were stalled out because they couldn't, the, there were cows throw up in front. I remember watching this one horse uh, pick up its back foot and that the sheep go underneath the horse. Uh, it's just, it's just amazing. They're all buddies. And the things that, the thing, yeah, they're all buddies, but the thing that it does for the grass is phenomenal. Um, yeah. That's what I was going to add is the one thing that I noticed when I get multiple groups together, which I'm going to cheat here and talk about my llama again. Um, <laughs> I call him my herd effector. Right. We talk about herd effect. You get animals in together. They, they stimulate the ground and they increase the, the stimulation and the animal impact on the soil. Well, you get a, a different group of animals in there. One's going to have a hierarchy. Right. Definitely horses are, are higher than cattle. So as the horses go kind of wandering through the herd, they kind of get a little bit of attitude about them and they go kind of trotting through kind of fast. That causes all the cattle to kind of scatter. Right. They run through them and my donkeys do that. And definitely my llama does that. And it is increasing your animal impact on the soil because this other type of species is charging through the middle of the herd because they can, and it increases the impact on the soil. So just a herd of cows, they just kind of stand around and, and graze. Whereas you throw a llama down the middle of them and he goes running through the middle and makes them all scurry off to the side to give him room because he's a jerk. Um, that's increasing animal impact. So he's my herd effector. It's true. We've done laying hens and pigs together before too, and it worked really well, except we couldn't outsmart the raven that kept stealing the eggs. Yeah. You know what? I have um, not been able to run uh, chickens and hogs together. Uh, the hogs, um, the hogs just, well, and turkeys, uh, they did not work uh, with hogs. Uh, the hogs were too curious. Um, and I lost, started losing turkeys and, oh. and chickens. What we did they... was we gave the chickens a second layer. Mm, okay. So in, in the pen, so we had the steel cage, your steel cage, by the way, Tom. Oh yeah. At your steel cage that I, I got from him years ago. Um, we, we put a panel down, uh, connected it to the cage about halfway up. So about two feet off the ground, we have this panel coming out. So the, the chickens had a place to roost. Their water was up there. Their feed was up there. Um, they could, you know, sit up there for the night and get away from the pigs. And that was their little home. But during the day, they could jump down and go collect bugs and grasshoppers and eat grass and do whatever cool. they wanted. And we never lost a single chicken to a pig. The other thing that we did too is when they first came in. So we made sure that the chickens were in the cage first um, before the piglets even came. So it was their place before it was the piglets um place and then the pigs kind of grew up with them so it, it wasn't yeah 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 awesome. the pigs well, were you know little too. i already the was bigger than the pig <laughs> that's yeah. right you know what i started when i i put the uh, the um uh turkeys and the the chickens uh with them uh the hogs were already like they're feeder hogs already yeah no, you know yeah, so they're yeah, 120 to 150 pounds already so yeah. Hey, just before we left, uh, leave this um, uh, topic, I just want to mention um, we don't give enough credence to the value of horses and what they can do for your soil. Uh, ground cover. 
like it, it's amazing. Uh, I remember uh, the first time I saw this, we were grazing um, about 80 bucking horses on alfalfa. And I was really concerned about, uh, we had no ground cover on this hill, but we had all this alfalfa. And you know how the spaces, there's all that ground or bare ground between the, um, between the um, alfalfa plants. Two rotations uh, with those horses. We had a thatch layer that had to be, I want to say three inches thick. Uh, now the, we were mo moving the, the horses, um, I think every... I think it was every two days, you know, they were only on like a quarter of an acre uh, at a time. I think that's what it was. And um, every two days we're moving these horses and we did that uh, two rotations and it was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, now, of course, if you leave, let them park, they'll do just what every other animal does. Uh, you know, they'll, just, they'll just take it down to the, to, the, to the ground. So is that horses by themselves or horses with cows? Well, the horses with the cows is like I, I like putting them together. But when we that instance that I'm talking about, it was just the 80 bucking horses. Yeah, uh, I think uh, at I th that time. I Go ahead. Steve. I, think, I think horses do a lot more animal impact, just the way they move, the way they, you know, they get excited and run. I mean, we had 100 horses one winter and yeah, it was scary sometimes in there the way they would stampede and charge. Um, I think, Tom, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago. Um, I think your number you said was to add 10% of your herd as horses in your cow herd causes a nice mix. That was for um, winter grazing. Okay. Because I could like, see uh, there, was a, there was a fellow um, uh, in the Chilcotin area of, of uh, in the Caribou area of, um, of um, British Columbia. It's kind of kind of west and north of uh, Williams Lake area named the guy's name was Pan Phillips and his key his secret uh, was uh, grazing the um, flooded meadows in the winter but there's lots of snow there so he ran uh, he had 350 cows he run ran his horses his saddle horses with those cows and it, you know it was about uh, uh, 10 cows to one horse and then I read um, I read uh, an article talking about that thing. I think it was um, Lara might have had that, uh, you know, from Vermilion. Uh, that group there uh, might have been in one of their publications, and um, someone was talking about that. Um, and that's where, when you're swath grazing, in my opinion, um, if the snow gets really deep, just throw some horses in there, and they'll open it up for your cows. Yeah, the horses paw a lot better in the winter too, but. But so I'm going to kind of okay, rush you guys here because um, we do have one more person that I've said that they can ask their question okay, um, before we shut down the formal part of this and then we can just get into all the crazy like multiple species and all the fun <laughs> stuff okay. there. Um, so Jack, if you want to go ahead. It's a pretty hot topic question. Yeah, I, guess, I, so. I think I saw that one. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to read it off just because we are kind of pushing it for time. Um, so Jack's question was, instead of paying rent, we should be paid to sequester carbon and improve soil health. We are taking dirt and turning it into soil. How much is this worth? That is the million dollar question right there. Okay, so the first time I heard about carbon credits being sold was back in 2008. Um, I was wor kind of working with a company that was actually brokering carbon credits in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, 
they were talking about, you know, all this good things we're doing about putting carbon into the soil and, and uh, they actually started to pay grain farmers. And I'm thinking, really? Why would you pay a grain farmer carbon credits when they're doing tillage and burning diesel fuel and, and uh, you know, all the fertilizer they're putting in that, that cost carbon to, to make? Um, didn't make sense to me. And, and all of a sudden they were, they were starting to explain some of the details. But so this was in 2008. They were backing this up. They were post paying carbon credits back to 2002 at the time. So that's what, six years worth of carbon credits. So some of these guys were getting, you know, checks for 30 and $40,000. And I'm like, whoa, where's my check? I, uh, I started in 201, started expanding by 204, 205. I was getting up to some pretty, you know, fair size acres. And I've, I've taken all this poor pasture land and I've converted it to this, you know, intensive cell grazed, regenerative grazing land. And I'm building carbon. I'm doing some wonderful things here. Where's my check? Where's my forty, fifty thousand dollars? I don't see it. Um, the reason is, is that they they did a whole bunch of research science on the grain farming. That coming from conventional tillage to zero tillage gave you this much benefit, and they were getting paychecks for it. And nobody had ever done any, you know, experiments or scientific data on grazing. So we didn't get a dime. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem fair because I've got this, you know, ability to regenerate soil and, you know, take, use plants to take carbon from the air and put it in the soil and grow soil. Why, why don't I get a paycheck for this? So years go by, of course, we never, you know, and it takes time to do everything. Um, about what, three, four years ago now, they started a research study and my, our ranch was a part of it. Um, they did a three-year study on sequestering carbon. So it was done through the University of Alberta. There was uh, 30 different locations, 60 sites technically, because it was two sites on every location. And they compared a continuous grazing to a regenerative grazing system. So um, we're, I, I still don't have all the final data from it. Um, they finished it, I, I believe, last year. So they're still, I think they got it all compiled, but I'm still waiting to get my copy of it. Um, but boy, it, it sure shows a difference in, in the soil types and the, 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 the difference in management. Um, so hopefully this research goes forward and we get some more research to go ahead and, and maybe we'll get, start getting paid for this. But honestly, it's offensive to me that back in 2008, uh, a bunch of these big grain farmers that, in my opinion only, absolutely don't deserve it, um, are getting paid carbon credits. Um, I've had grain farmers come over and, you know, buy out land from underneath me that I've, you know, built and, and stored up carbon over the last 14 years. And some grain farmer comes in and then rips it all up and tears it up and push bulldozes all, all the trees down and fills in all the dugouts. And all of a sudden now, because he's a zero till farmer, uh, he's eligible for carbon credits when he just destroyed 14 years worth of carbon sequestration. So yeah, that's a, that's a sore, sore point for me. <laughs> um, I don't have the solution for it. It would be nice if we could uh, at least be acknowledged that we're doing a good job at that. But uh, it's coming. I think we're moving in that direction. And uh, hopefully that comes around eventually. Tom, what's your comment on that? We've discussed that lots. You're very long-winded. <laughs> I, I am. Okay, you know what? Uh, I'll just, I've been doing a lot of uh, reading of uh, different research um, regarding this. And 
we still don't have um, we don't have the answers. Um, uh, we don't know how to test it, and certainly the value is not um, uh, has not been established yet. Uh, but it's coming, and um, but one thing that I from all the research that I've I've read, you have to be increasing um, the forage, and if you are not increasing forage, you are not uh, sequestering carbon. And that study that you referred to, um, so that was published uh, at the end of October. Um, that's exactly what they found. There was no difference between the continuous graze and the adaptive or regenerative grazing system. Uh, and then the other research that I read, it's because the um, uh, carbon gets sequestered when uh, forage is increasing above ground. So there, it's, it's exciting. I find it exciting, um, but we're not there yet because we don't have the science. Uh, we don't have the science to back it and to test it. Okay, we're gonna call that an evening. Um, doesn't mean you have to leave. We're not booting you out of here by any means. Um, Tom, thank you very much for all your wisdom and experience and, and your, your charming demeanor. <laughs> um, to me, uh, this is a, a, a fantastic opportunity for people just to chit chat and, and discuss ideas. Um, we're gonna officially shut down the session now uh, special thanks to the Gateway Research Organization for, for helping us organize this. Um, glad everybody, thank you everybody for coming out and participating. We do this every Wednesday night during the winter anyway. I don't know if we'll do it during the summer, but during the winter we'll, we'll keep this going. By all means, stick around and chit chat. If you've got a comment about what somebody else posted on, on chat, um, by all means, uh, uh, question them. Uh, you can open up your mic now and, and maybe your video if you want to as we start to drop in numbers that you know the videos can open up as well and find somebody you know who wants to talk about something just pretend you're at the at, at the table at the conference and it's lunch break what would you what would you say to people so um i am hey, not Steve? gonna sorry yeah i just want to make can i just have uh yep you bet uh, a moment okay um i know that we uh we didn't cover um you know go into more depth on um our topic uh, that we're supposed to talk about, uh, which is fine, uh, but I do want to reiterate: um, it's uh, it's changing your your frame of reference. Um, in my mind, ranching should be simple, easy, and fun. And if it's not, we're doing something wrong. And when it's simple, easy, and fun, a twelve-year-old can do it, an eighty-year-old can do it, and we'll have a lot more um, we'll have a lot more time to think, and we'll have a lot more time to recreate. And yep. the added bonus, it'll be more profitable. Yep, I agree. Good closing, good closing. For me too, it's a, what is your physical limitation? Right? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm getting older and I can't do what I did 10 years ago. So I need to change things. And, and I've been changing things for many, many years to get to that point. So. 